0: Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Writer Network. My guest today is Fred Gibson. He's a co-founder and core member of Communities to Protect and Resist. An environmental and social justice activist, he's lived in Colorado off and on since 1970 and has witnessed the native beauty and biological diversity of the Front Range, as well as its ongoing destruction. He's determined to reverse that trend. He's worked as an organizational psychologist and leadership scholar, coach, and practitioner for over 40 years. As a result, he's able to offer his experience to build effective leadership and organizational capacity to groups that resist the destruction of the planet. His experiences in the military, business world, and academia provide perspectives on organizing and leading, from which he can draw to round out his analysis and ground CPR initiatives. He's participated in resistance work in various forms, including the Castle Rock Prairie Dog Campaign in Colorado, Colorado support efforts in Oak Flat, Arizona, Standing Rock, North Dakota, and the Great Basin, Nevada, and Manila Bay, among others. In addition to helping grow CPR as an organization, Fred teaches courses to activists and community leaders and writes the occasional blog post. He's ready to work with activists and community lead, community builders to make community happen. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being on the program.
1: Thanks, Derek. I appreciate it. Um, before we start, I guess I do have a reflection, if you, if you don't mind. That, Great. You know, as I was- Reflecting on uh, getting ready for this interview, it occurred to me that uh, when I first came to Colorado, you were also on the Front Range, I believe, in 1970 and the early 70s. Um, and then uh, shortly after that, in the mid-70s, I was in Tucson, Arizona, where I was cohabiting in, the, in a very general sense uh, with uh, Abby. And so it seems to me like... Uh, Between you and Edward Abbey, the planet was trying to tell me something. Uh, And fortunately, I didn't listen right away, but I'm trying to use the um, later stages of my life to make up for that and to do something in return for the planet. So here we are.
0: Yeah, here we are. Um, Yeah, I grew up in, I I was in Colorado from 1964 to 1984. and There you go. um, And it's frankly breaks my heart every time I go back. And one example is, and then we'll get to real discussion in a minute. But when I was a kid, every year we used to drive up to Loveland to mail a valentine to my grandma, um, you know, Loveland with the with the postmark. And, um, it was a tiny, tiny little town and I was in Loveland, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And it's huge. It's it's just, absolutely. It, I mean, basically, and I don't, I don't, I, I'm overstating here a bit, but, you know, it's basically one big city from Fort Collins down to Pueblo. I'm yeah. Pueblo or Colorado Springs at least.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you'll also be surprised perhaps not to see all the dead, uh, forests that are up on the mountains now that didn't exist like that, uh, 10 or 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. It's, I don't understand how anybody doesn't see what's going on um absolutely so um on that note um would you rather start by talking about CPR or talking about your own background um i think that's
1: a, that was a wonderful introduction to my background and i think that's uh that's frankly enough that needs to be said about that so um if that's okay i could uh, start chatting a little bit about CPR let's do that okay well CPR is a right now a relatively small group um we are a support group and a clearinghouse and a resource bank and a facilitator for activists who want to build and then leverage communities in in service of a living planet and just and sustainable lives and so you know our vision would be to build a coalition of and for communities that are working together to actively uh, resist the forces that are destroying life on this planet Uh, we formed about uh, five or six years ago uh, myself and jules kirk and uh, shortly after that joined by jennifer murnan and right now we serve as kind of the core for uh, for cpr
0: and I'm, I'm sorry if this is a, a stupid question but so what do you do well that is a good question i mean you were talking about like being a clearinghouse and yeah uh well Sometimes we're
1: able to connect communities who have uh, maybe complementary skills or or interest or whatever. Um, What we what we do and what we're currently involved in mostly is uh, training, uh, leadership sorts of training. We started doing that uh, again about uh, five years ago. And uh, this actually is kind of a segue of sorts, Derek. Um, I I had done some uh, leadership training called Leadership for Resistance, and we had done about three rounds of that or so. Uh, and it turned out that we started to get participants from uh, North America, uh, Europe, and the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and uh, so we we have, a, in a very tiny sense, a sort of a, a global presence. And I had gotten feedback um, from some folks that the sessions that we had were, were kind of dense and that uh, perhaps uh, people like Boris Forkel and others said, you know, this kind of stuff that you're talking about would be would be maybe uh, well served in in book form um and at the same time we had gotten some feedback we were almost commissioned in a sense by um suresh balraj and salonika nupani um to to do something a little different and so we had done we had kind of translated the mainstream leadership stuff into uh, leadership for existence they were looking for something different and they and they said to us essentially look we don't want this kind of stuff that's taught in business schools we want something uh different for for our activists and community builders uh here in the region and so that's when i put together the course called leading communities of resistance uh, and that is basically what has turned into uh the book and so that's kind of what we're talking about the things that are in the book and the things that are in that training are the kinds of things that hopefully we'll we'll chat a little bit about today. Uh, and, you know, I I discovered uh, and I don't know if you've had the same experience, Derek, but I kind of discovered in terms of writing the book that it's not here's all here's the stuff that I know as much as here's the stuff that I've learned. And, uh, so that, that is one way I think that I like to present the book is, boy, I've learned an awful lot about, um, leading communities in the process of doing this. And here are some of the things I've learned in the book.
0: So what does that mean? Um, a, a leadership training or let's focus on the word leadership for a moment. Um, okay. and I, uh, a couple of things. One is that, uh, Among certain sets of anarchists, you know, the word leadership is akin to saying Stalin, which is, of course, just absurd. Um, And then also. uh, Just can you like if we were talking about, um, you know, what is the what are some of the biomes of the front range, I would I would ask you to really break it down, like who. So I was doing an interview years ago about uh, a threat to an Australian forest by and the threat was windmills. And we get like 20 minutes in the interview and I'm like, wait, can we stop? I can't see the forest. I can't see what you're talking about. Can you like what tree species live there? What plant species? I mean, what animal species. So can you just get really mm-hmm. basic? Uh, the Everything up to this point that I've been rambling on for the last 30 seconds has been, I, I don't think we have, we collectively have a comfortable relationship with the notion of leadership. And yep. I think that it's so basic that I would like for you to start at sort of baby steps and okay. describe to us what leadership can and should mean in a positive sense and what leadership training does then mean. Is, it, is this making sense?
1: Sure, sure. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. So let me let me start by saying this, that in, in the times that I've taught leadership, it, it, the way I've taught it has has really evolved. And so to me, the way that you define leadership uh, serves as kind of a Rorschach test. OK, and, and so I have these kind of levels of leadership model that I talk about and I've published some somewhere else. But basically, it's this. The way that you define leadership says a lot about you and the kinds of things that you value and the way that you view others uh, in your collective um, environment so you know we, we could we could talk about Harry Truman who says uh, leadership is getting other people to do what you want and like it well that's horrible um, and it's not about getting people to do anything so the the model that that I choose and I think that's the best way to put it there isn't any correct model of leadership but be careful which model you choose because it it says a lot about how you relate to others but it comes from a group of authors Kuzis and posner and the way they describe it is leadership is the art and practice of mobilizing others to want to struggle for shared aspirations so so it's this notion of sharing aspirations of building a shared vision of of encouraging others um that that makes for leadership and this is this as he said this is the baby step kind of approach to leadership but another way to think of it uh derek and this is something that uh that i have written about elsewhere and that is leadership leadership isn't about uh, a person it's about a role and one of the reasons why it's important for people to to take on a leadership development uh, opportunity is so that they're ready to take on that role when it falls to them and so in any particular organization or collective Anybody can be acting in a leadership capacity, depending on the circumstances and what their skills are and so on. Um, and so it's not about uh, it's not about what used to be called the great man theory of leadership, that some people are, are born leaders and others not. So it's more about helping people learn the skills uh, and the values and worldview that they need to be af- effective leaders. Um, now, when you talk about communities, uh, the, that, that bumps things up a little bit. Now I'll get to that, I guess, way later in this conversation. So for us, um, what does it mean to engage in leadership training? In part, uh, what I've come to understand too, is it's hard to teach leadership to, um, to kids and adolescents, because as much as anything, there's an awful lot of values um, exploration and maturity that's involved in that. So, if i was going to help somebody be a better leader and by the way everybody can become better as a leader um and that that's what to me leadership training or leadership development is all about i'd like to call it development instead of training because it involves a a certain degree of uh, interpersonal and personal maturation so i would have people talk about there are some skills involved sure um but it's also about what what do you think are important uh, how do your values intersect with your collective? How is it that you can encourage others? How can you develop a climate of trust among others? How can you keep people going when things get tough? And those are all the kinds of things that we discuss when we talk about leadership. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it, it does. And and let's say that I'm in a group, and um, and the group is 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 functioning, and. Uh-huh. How do, how do, how would I know that the group needs some, how would you know inside a group whether, what would be your metrics for determining whether your group leadership is, is working effectively or not? How, how, how how would one know whether one needs this assistance? Because, you know, it's like, think about relationships and you can have, Oh God, I hate this because I'm going to quote Donald Rumsfeld, but it, and everybody made fun of this line, but it was really good line. You know, there are the known knowns, the unknown knowns. Let's see. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's the things you know, you know, the things you know that you don't know and the things you don't know that you don't know. And (laughs) so in, in a, in, in a, in an organization, what would be some of the metrics that if you were in an organization what would be some of the metrics you would look for that's like, huh, we might need some help with our leadership. Well, Or, or, you, or you could go, yeah. wow, we got pretty good leadership.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, and I think, interestingly, you have kind of alluded to uh, a lot of the problems that we have in resistance work, right? So um, do we have problems with turnover in resistance organizations? Uh, do we have problems with people who... Um, Take on a task, but don't commit to it. Do we have problems with with people who fade away? Uh, do we have internal squabbling? Uh, you know, you and I have both read and experienced a lot of the phenomenon that is the left eating itself. Um, do we find that we are winning or losing when it comes to uh, protecting the planet and, and you know, and living world and just societies? So there are both internal and external uh, measures or clues or whatever about what's going on. If you ask, for example, uh, the members of your collective to describe the vision for that collective, would they all be able to describe the same sort of thing uh, or would they be all over the place in terms of where they think the organization is going? So, so there's lots of things that, um, and I, I don't want to say leaders, but there's lots of things that individuals in a collective can look to to get a feeling for, hey, you know, things are going well uh, or they're not going well. Are people committed uh, to what what the organization or the collective or the resistance is all about? Or are they just paying lip service to it and at the first sign of trouble um, take off? Um, and so to me, one of the one of the key. Uh, one of the key skills, I guess, or capacities that someone who might serve in a leadership role uh, would have is to be able to frame the situation just as you have uh, indicated. So. A problem is is much more easily solved when it can be properly framed. And so one of the things that we do in our leadership development work is to give people a frame that they can use to look at a situation and say, here are things that are going well and here are
0: the things that are maybe not going so well. And sorry if this is too far afield, but it's, it's something that has always really struck me. And I'm wondering where everything you're saying fits into it, that I have been at various at stores or hospitals or some institutions and some of them it seems like everybody's crabby and I was having something done at one hospital one time and like it was like entering I don't know Oz or something cuz like everybody was smiling even the janitors like hey how you doing and I I I very much noticed an institutional personality. Sure. And then years ago I was asked to be, uh, to attend a board meeting of of the company Patagonia and, um, everybody there seemed really nice and seemed effective. And I asked the human rights, the, the HR director, just the question I'm asking you is like, how do you end up with an institutional, um, personality? And he said that, For them, it was all about hiring, that when they brought in a new person, they didn't care about their, they cared a lot more about their personality than they did their experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, and I'm sorry if I'm going too far afield, but it it feels like this applies to what you're talking about. And let me know, if it doesn't, that's fine. But if it does, how does it apply?
1: Well, boy, there's all kinds of answers to this. And one is, and this is something that I uh, emphasize again and again in, in the talks that I have with folks and that. Um, John Cotter, who is a management scholar, I think he used to be at the uh, Harvard Business School, um, talked about organizational change. And one of his mantras was uh, that culture comes last, that uh, the, the culture that you have as an organization. And by the way, every organization has a culture. The issue is whether it's healthy uh, or uh, unhealthy and whether it's strong or weak. And, that, and that's one of the challenges of leaders um, is to build a strong and a healthy culture. Uh, but the other thing, too, is I don't know that I agree necessarily with Cotter. Culture comes last, but it also comes first and it comes always. So a, a leader uh, or someone in a leadership role is always building and always cultivating a healthy culture and and uh, cultivating uh, people who are committed to a vision and, and a mission for that organization. And, you know, there, there are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of degrees of freedom for lack of a better term for, for how that plays out. So for example, a guy named Orlando Bailing, who is a, a, a pretty well-known uh, organizational scholar said, if you just give me somebody who is relatively, relatively bright and is uh, uh, conscientious, uh, we can do what we need to, to make that person a really strong contributor to our collective. Now he didn't use those terms, but, um, but so that's the thing. So you can bring on people who have all the skills and values and motivation that you need to be effective, or you can uh, develop those in the people that are already, already with you. And so, uh, you know, again, as always, one of the issues for us is how to frame the situation. So do I, do I work with the people that, that we have here and, and help to uh, make sure that they're motivated, clear-eyed in terms of uh, line of sight and what we're trying to do, accomplishing our vision and so on? uh, Or do we need to have other
0: people come on board who can help us do
1: things that that we can't currently?
0: So I have two possible directions to go. Thank you for all that. That's really interesting stuff. Um, I have two possible directions to go. Do you want to talk three possible directions? One, (laughs) what is a radical community? Would be one possible question. Another okay. possible direction would be: Do you want to talk about your your book for a while? And the third possible direction is: Um, you mentioned the military earlier, and you know I've read. I'm very fascinated by military history, and I want to tell one quick anecdote, which is that I was recently reading a, a just a history of the. Uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union in World War II. And this particular one focused on the personalities of the generals. And I was kind of appalled and also laughing at the high school crap that was going on between the generals, like they're trying to steal oil from each other. And it was not, you know, we have this sort of cliche of military efficiency or german efficiency or whatever cliches we want to throw out there and they were it was like high school students um that were squabbling with each other at the same time that they're you know trying to invade the soviet union and it it kind of made me laugh um just because it was so dysfunctional is the word i'm looking for sure um so anyway three three possible directions what is a radical community talk about your new book or what's the relationship between uh, the sort of military training? Because you can't talk about military training without talking about leadership, too. Um, Absolutely. So, what's any one of those three you want to do?
1: Well, first, let me let me respond to that very interesting kind of uh, phenomenon that you noticed. And 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 here's the thing: because I remember having conversations with with people back in my military days about this person was. Uh, really good in wartime but not in peacetime and blah 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 and and and, and so it's it like it's kind of like the work that you and the of others done has really kind of helped me see why i was so uneasy with so much stuff that was going on in the world it gave me a a lens or, or frame or whatever to say oh that's what the hell is going on and so one of the things that i discovered that was going on two things actually and one is the reason why we have conversations about why this general is uh, made it to general, but then really sucks when, you know, the, uh, the war starts is the difference between leadership and management um, and that some people are good managers. Uh, they're good at controlling things and having spreadsheets and making sure that, you know, this is done and that's done and so on. But they're not good at the, the other things that, that are involved in leadership. And related to that, I think that sometimes, well, sometimes most of the time, I'm going to say, uh, people get promoted to very high positions in the military because of their political acumen, because they're political animals, not because they're necessarily good leaders. And so that's why I think we, we observe the things that you've observed. Um, so what what we try to do is uh I, I don't focus on management principles. Shit, you can go to any, you know, management book or business book and get get some of that in there. Uh what we try to do is to talk about what is it that's gonna make you an effective leader that's gonna help you uh create uh leadership um dispersed throughout your collective so that everybody is committed to protecting and, and resisting and they're ready to do the right thing, uh, whether supervised or, or not. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm getting my own self far afield. But does that kind of answer you, the question that you posed there?
0: Yeah, it does. It does. And and thank you uh, consistently through this interview for taking my inchoate questions and turning them into something useful. Okay,
1: whatever. Uh, well, good. They're
0: interesting questions. And I'm happy to kind of explore that a little bit. So uh, do you want to go radical community or do you want to yeah. go your book first? No, let's let's do that,
1: because uh, these things that uh, that I'm talking about are, are the things that, uh, in great measure, uh, make up the book. Uh, you know, talking about what a um, what a radical community is and how you build one and so on. That, that's that's probably about a third of uh, the kinds of things that we talk about in the book. But uh, yeah, if you don't mind, let me just launch, launch into that. And uh, and again, if you have questions, you know, uh, let's chat a bit. Um, a little while ago, uh, a couple months ago, we had a kind of a workshop up in northern Colorado. And it was called uh, Celebrating Radical Community. And so uh, I, I was one of the speakers in, in that workshop. And and so one of the things that I talk about is why is it that we celebrate not just a community, but uh, what we call, what I'll call a CPR collective, a collective that's consistent with what we think is important in, in CPR. And uh, And I want to make sure, you know, when we talk about radical community, we're trying to reclaim language too you've you've had this uh discussion with lots of folks but you know the the left is littered with constructs like radical and feminist and so on that are misunderstood and and misused and so on so i think it's important for us to if we're going to build a radical community have a decent understanding of, of what the hell it's all about um and and so let me talk i can give you a definition which sounds kind of academic so i won't do that and instead i'll tell you that the the way that we define community kind of emerges as we talk about the, the five uh, facets or characteristics of, of a CPR collective. Um, but, but first uh, why do we celebrate community? And the first of those is uh, why we founded CPR in the first place in a sense. And that is, I heard you speak a couple of years ago when somebody asked you what's needed to dismantle industrial civilization. And you said something to the effect that what we need is uh 10,000 cadres who are committed to doing that work, which is absolutely true. The issue is, or the problem is, that those cadres are generally a little bit too small to be self-sustaining. And at the other end, large organizations often aren't able to maintain focus and internal integrity. And so resistance communities, I think, are kind of the sweet spot uh, of organizational forms. Uh, At the same time, they conform more to the natural state of society. Um, And so one of the reasons why community is important in in our sense is that, uh, um, you know, they are the sweet spot in terms of organizational forms. Um, Much of our work, much of this book, you know, borrows from or accepts or subscribes to the deep green uh, philosophy. And and so it's probably not a surprise that uh, we agree that collapse is coming uh, and that we need to we need to organize. We need to build communities in response to that threat and and one of the things to mention here is that uh cpr collectives are survival platforms you know we we talk about people who are going to build these uh, uh bomb shelters and and readouts and so on uh but that's only going to provide temporary safety you know once the starving hordes come over the hill uh they're just going to be overrun and so what's needed are uh communities as a, as a mechanism of survival during collapse um At at the same time, if collapse is coming, and I think uh, I agree that it is, um, we need to have new forms that replace it. Industrial civilization is killing life on this planet, and we need new societal forms to replace it. And CPR collectives, uh, to the extent that they emphasize just and sustainable uh, living and and are biophilic, are are healthy alternatives to that. Uh, The good news is that they're... These are probably unlimited in, in terms of the specific forms that they can take. Uh, but matriarchy, is, I think, is a good example of one that would probably work. Uh, but what's important is not specifically what form that community takes, but that it's life affirming and that it's just. And uh, CPR collectives also for, uh, serve as kind of a um, there's twin functions, I guess, that they that they serve. And uh, it's it goes like this. Uh, They're both resistance support and sustenance. So uh, as you know, resistance movements are hard to instigate and really hard to maintain because activists fall away and they fall away because there's uh, familial duties or there's a lack of uh, funds uh, or other crises, health crises and so on that they have to attend to. And I have certainly um, fallen prey to that as well. There, There are campaigns that I would have been part of that I couldn't because of uh things back home that i had to attend to so um, cpr collectives can serve as as a way to support people and and keep um activist warriors on the front line so to speak at the same time that work that activist work is draining it's stressful it's isolating uh and it's fraught with with risk and and danger and so one of the things that communities can do uh, in addition to keeping warriors on the front line is to sustain them when they get back to serve as a support group and get people healed and healthy and ready to continue the fight for uh, for the living planet. And then I guess in, in terms of why community and CPR collectives are important, is the blindingly obvious, and that is uh, those sorts of communities are the natural order. Um, and that's something that indigenous cultures know and have known for thousands of years, that communities enrich and heal. And we've had people like uh, Michael Carter and Susan Hyatt you know, right on on the effects of industrial civilization, like stress, illness, addiction, violence, and so on. Um, but communities offer something just the opposite of that: intimacy, camaraderie, nurturance, support, and the structures that that we need to survive and, and keep moving along. So, so that's in a very general sense why um, uh, CPR collectives are celebrated and the kind of premises that 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 I talk about in the book and, and that we kind of uh, incorporate into our worldview. Uh, what I would like to transition to, if that works, is so, okay, that's the question that begs asking then is, so what makes a community radical? Does that make sense? Should we do that?
0: Um, yes. Um. I want to put an asterisk in. I want to come back to this notion of organizing before collapse. I want to make sure I'm saying it so, so one of the two of us will remember it. Okay. Um, because, and not just organizing for collapse, but organizing before, but the importance of pre-organizing. But I've I've wasted enough time with that, so let's come back to that later. So yes, please go to radical.
1: Okay. So you know my my somewhat tongue-in-cheek take on this is you know w- we certainly love our sibling communities that are focused on healthy relationships with each other and that sort of thing, but our situation is desperate enough to ask ourselves to move our focus to something different, more radical, in a sense, orientation. And uh, I used to say that CPR collectives aren't your grandparents' communities. Uh, They're different. And In fact, it's more accurate to say that they are more like your grandparents' communities than your parents' communities. Because your parents or your grandparents probably did experience, or at least aware of, communities that were a little bit, um, different than the ones that are out there today. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a second. So anyway, we aspire to something different. We, we're not trying to build community development corporations uh, or the Civic League or housing co-ops or, or even ACORN. We're looking for something that's uh, a little more radical. And I think there are three things that make a community radical, purpose, practices, and perspectives. Um, and the first is the purpose, and that is radical communities are oppositional. Um, you know, the CPR collectives that we're talking about aren't content to just rise from the ashes of the oppressive institutions. Uh, they are there and we are there to actively oppose them in in all their forms. And, and one of the things that I think keeps people from doing this work that is unfortunate is uh, they don't have a sense that these sorts of radical communities are a lot more numerous than they might imagine. And and in the book, I talk about things like uh, Zapatistas and the Black Panthers and the Rojava group and so on. So one of the things that's important for people to understand is that, you know, we're not alone when it comes to that. Um, So again, it's not new and and people would be well served to look at a little bit of the history of those oppositional communities from the the earlier uh, 20th century. Uh, Community was both a, a site of resistance and an alternative to the you know kind of the Dickensian uh, industrial civilization that that was that had been arisen. So uh, one of the things that makes a community radical is, is a purpose. The other one is practices. Um, communities uh, need to attend to both internal and external processes. And so the the um, the purpose of, of resistance and opposition is kind of an external orientation, but they need to attend to internal processes too. And and one of the ways they do that is to reject patriarchy as a root cause of much of the problem in the world today. And so to practice at least a more uh, apatriarchal approach and perhaps a more matriarchal approach. Another way that um, communities are radical is the set of features of the collectives. And I have five of those that uh, hopefully we'll get to in in a little bit. Um, And the other thing to think about, too, is as I talk about the components of a, a CPR community, To think of it as aspirational, you know, community builders and elders uh, and activists should try to build as much of these features into their communities as possible. Um, Will they get there uh, completely? Perhaps. We hope so. But if not, that doesn't mean you shouldn't engage in the effort that, that, um, you know, you're going to be better than you were before. The closer you can get to this aspirational ideal uh, that that I talk about in the book. So the third P, in terms of what makes a community um, radical, is that they adopt, uh, in some measure, indigenous perspectives. Uh, it would be just crazy to not acknowledge um, the leadership perspectives from indigenous groups who have lived for tens of thousands of years in concert with with a living world, and so you, we ignore that at our peril. And uh, and one of the things that's kind of a theme in in, in this uh, book, Derek, is. Um, you you might you hopefully will find yourself as you pursue community building uh, with the rest of your collective that you're not just becoming a better leader but that you're becoming an elder and uh so toward the end of the book i talk about what does it mean then to be a community leader what does it mean to be an elder and what are the what are the two or three uh themes uh, or things to look out for uh, that make for an effective leader in that sort of role So those are the three Ps that make for uh, a radical community. And so uh, what we're trying to do and what I try to do in the book is to do the meta theme is that committing to these helps build uh, community power. And so the the theme is first, how do you build power in your community? And then secondly, how do you leverage that power? And so interspersed in in the book, there are three different uh, sections where we talk about what are the strategic Uh, What are the strategy concepts and so on that you need to incorporate along the way as you're building a community and then getting ready to leverage power, leverage its power in a strategic sense? So uh, um, I'll give us all a chance to take a breath and then uh, maybe chat briefly about what those five components of uh, CPR Collective are.
0: Um, Great. So take your breath and then go. (laughs) Okay. are you keeping a pin in that other thing? Yeah, I still I still have it.
1: Okay. So uh, let me say this: that what I'm going to describe is is, is my model of a CPR uh, community, and I want to say because um, because I know one of the things that w- we do on the left and in the social sciences is uh, we have a a love of deconstruction, um, and so it's it said that you may have heard this expression before, Derek: that uh, in physics. Um, You know, physics uh, as a field progresses by standing on the shoulders of those who came before. And uh, in the social sciences, uh, it progresses by standing on their faces. And so we need to be wary of this notion we have of of deconstructing uh, without hearing what other people have to say about stuff. I'm just doing that to keep the deconstructors at bay, Derek. So um, at least for a couple of minutes. Right. Um, so, so all models are wrong. Some are useful, and hopefully, so hopefully, mine is you know not hundred percent correct, but I hope it's a useful one to build and to leverage community power. So, here's the model, and I'll just briefly go over the, the five aspects of it because I see we're uh, we've, we're kind of along in time here. Um, so, here are the five components: consciousness, comradeship, commitment, shared power, and and leadership. And and again, the challenge. For community leaders and builders of whatever ilk is to build those components which result in power, and then to leverage that power strategically to protect and resist. So the first of these, and again, please, you know, Derek, jump in if you need to have a pause at any time. Um, First of these is community consciousness. Before a collective can fight back against the, the dominant culture, we need to develop awareness, not just of the problem, but of the power that we can wield when when we organize. And so effective collectives explore and cultivate their consciousness. And I think this is I hate to say it, but this is the without which there is nothing, I think, of of resistance work. And that is this notion of consciousness. What what is our place in the world? What is our history and so on? Um, because without that there's there's no clear notion of identity. There's no sense of meaning. There's no reason to resist if we don't have a sense of consciousness. And and my professional lament um, is this. I thought I was gonna be the person to coin this term community consciousness. And then I started looking around and and realized that uh, this guy named Gene Theodority, Gene Theodority had already done that. And so let me just tell you what his definition is because I think it's quite descriptive. Um, when a community is truly conscious, it's fully aware of and knowledgeable about its current social, economic, and environmental conditions. Uh, Moreover, the community understands the history of its people, economy and environment, and it has a well defined vision for the future. That that sounds really, really good, really effective. And so the challenge then is to help communities achieve awareness of those forces and how they shape uh, the world that they're in right now. And and without getting into the details, let me just say, as with with all of these components, there are multiple perspectives uh, involved in each of those. So, for example. When we talk about consciousness, uh, consciousness in some sense is bound up in their sense of identity. Um, Members in the the collective should understand uh, where they where they are, but also what they stand for. What are the core values of this community? Uh, How does it um, how does it help us define what our vision is for the future and how we're going to get there? Um, It's not just about proximity, um, but it's also about a common identity. What what is this group all about? What makes us this group? Um, and so coming to grips with the core values of a collective and doing that values exploration is, is, is a part of what makes a uh, community leader effective. Um, what is unique about this community? A conscious community isn't necessarily unique, but it does present a, a sense of uniqueness. And so this is one of the, one of the ways or one of the times in which uh, one of the most valuable things that leaders can do crops up. And that is the power of celebrations. Um, effective communities uh celebrate and gather but just like with the old kids um periodical it's fun with the purpose so so when communities get together and they celebrate this is the opportunity for them to talk about their collective history uh, with their collective roles with their short short uh shared values with their idiosyncratic vision and so on so um Cultivating that sense of worth, that sense of identity and uniqueness and so on is, is important in terms of consciousness. And then finally, let's not forget that consciousness and, and intent are bound up in each other. So one of the things that makes the community conscious is that they are aware and acceptance of their radical intent. So that's consciousness. And I think another really fundamental building block is, is comradeship. Um, And this is, I guess, where the military stuff comes in again in particular. And that is, Soldiers in a war, uh, they don't fight for a cause. They fight for the person next to them, right? And and so uh, when we're talking about comradeship, community builders need to create the conditions under which uh, comrades care enough for each other to struggle with them, uh, to want them to grow and succeed, and to fight for them as much as we do for the planet. And so to me, that is that is this notion of social cohesion, which is just as important as consciousness, I think.
0: You know, that... that... You know, I've heard the thing before about uh, about not fighting for a cause or not fighting for the country, but, you know, fighting for the members of your platoon or something. Yeah. I, You know, we've all heard that a lot of times, but it never occurred to me until this moment that I have never once in any environmental organization heard anybody say, yeah, I'm doing it for my buddy here it's always i'm doing it for the owls i'm doing it for and that's important i'm not devaluing the owls but i'm contrasting the camaraderie in a mm-hmm. military situation with a complete absence of it in in many environmental organizations uh absolutely and so
1: So let me say this about that. Um, First of all, this notion of comradeship isn't just a groovy good thing to have. Okay. Um, It's important because it creates social capacity. And that's the ability of members to get stuff done because they work well together, because they do have this kind of interpersonal uh, bond with each other. and and so it has kind of a direct connection to power, Derek. I think that, you know, as you're talking about those issues in environmental uh, collectives of, of some sort, um, you know, I would also say I think that's true, but it's not enough. And, it, and this is one of the things I write in the book. It's not enough to rely on mutual purpose like social justice to keep members together. Uh, we've seen too many examples of the left eating itself. Uh, and falling away because of, there are some minor disagreements uh, with others. And so uh, it's kind of a necessary but insufficient condition, okay? Um, so we we need to have both. We need to both have a compelling vision of the future that people commit to and a sense of comradeship so that, so that we can create this social cohesion, social capital, and get stuff done together and, and create. This is just another one of the ways that I think communities uh, create power Does that make sense absolutely
0: absolutely um, okay so i interrupted you did you want to go on with where you were uh, uh well if you have something else to well about. we have we have probably five or six or seven minutes left and there are there are two topics i still want to cover okay um one of them is that asterisk that um the one way I've said this in term in terms of of collapse is that you know the time for you know men's violence against women goes up when society when patriarchal societies collapse, and something I've said at many talks is the time for women to learn self defense Is not when somebody is breaking down your door. The time to learn self-defense is is beforehand. And you're talking about organization for collapse. And can you I think this is absolutely crucial. And we think again, I mean, yeah, we all know that militaries kill people, but there are that doesn't alter the fact that we can learn important lessons about the fact that they prepare massively for future exigencies. And it's the same with sports. You know, you practice and practice and practice so that in the game, you can actually perform with muscle memory. So can you talk about, especially given what so many of us understand about what is coming down the pike, can you talk about the importance of organizing now do you see what i'm getting at uh yeah yeah
1: hmm let me see well i i guess we certainly agree that you know yeah you don't want to wait until collapse to start organizing into a cpr sort of collective right because it does a number of things and that's kind of the stuff that i cover in those premises and that is a cpr collective when it's when it's organized um has power and uh, that power should be used to protect and resist. And so we don't we don't just talk about this in terms of it, power to protect yourself during collapse. Uh, you know, time is short, but we also want to use that power to help dismantle uh, industrial civilization and save what's left of, of the living world. So one of the things why it's important to to do that is to um, actually protect and resist and not just respond and not just be reactive, but to be proactive in, in creating uh, communities that can do the important work of of being uh, resistance activists and then secondly um you know what we, what we don't want is to, is to just have um, organizing forms rise from the ashes just willy-nilly on a random basis but if we can create communities that are just and sustainable and a it can serve as examples to others in terms of good ways to organize and good forms of societies that we can use to uh, populate the planet after collapse.
0: You know, one one of the things I thought about a lot during the whole Arab Spring era was that at first I was all excited about it, but the the first round winners of Arab Spring in Egypt, for example, was the Muslim Brotherhood, which was far more The point is that there were all these democracy activists who came out and they, you know, demonstrated, they, they participated in civic life, but the winner of the first round was the Muslim Brotherhood who had been organizing for 70 years or 80 Mm -hmm. years. And then the winner of the second round was actually the sort of the military industrial complex, which had been organizing for even longer. And you know, I wanted for the lesson of Arab Spring to be the power of the people, but the real lesson I think of Arab Spring is the the power of long term organization.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And so it's like you know that cliche is when's the best time to plant a tree? Right, it's twenty years ago, um, and the next best time is now. So you know, uh, for for those um, who agree with kind of you know my analysis, that is those. Those cadres are critically important in doing the actual on the ground work of resistance. um, But we need something more than just that. And what we need is these uh, these CPR collectives who uh, cultivate power and understand how to leverage it uh, in service of of a living planet. And, you know, we need to get started on that uh, right away. And we do have some folks who have been in, in, uh, you know, part of our sessions who are doing that process right now, What we're trying to do is to uh, diffuse that um, you know, far afield, and we have some folks that we are working with who are doing some of this sort of organizing right now.
0: So we have very little time left in more ways than one. And right. uh, could could you a let people know how they can get your book, and b let people know um, how they can find out more about your organization, and if possible, you know, put in place some of these workshops.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the first is if. if um, The book is going to be published this fall and we will let you know through all of the communications media that we have and uh, if you want to contact us and learn more about the stuff that we've been talking about um, it's uh, lowercase c t p r at protonmail or secondly uh, look at our uh, facebook page communities that protect and resist Uh, and we're also looking for people to help out with us we have a huge amount of things that we need to do that we can't because we don't have the capabilities right now so let us know if you can uh, spare some time uh, to help us out and, and
0: uh, yeah please one last thing which is you mentioned a facebook page but you also have the other website which is ctpr.home.blog correct um
1: and we check on that occasionally but we check on the protonmail account and we check on the facebook page more often so if you know if there's a time uh, sensitive nature to it, um, please do that. But those are three ways, absolutely, that you can contact us. And, and then uh, I guess if you'll indulge me, uh, Dirk, one one final thing, one takeaway, I guess, of all of this um, is that community building and community leadership needs to be uh, demystified. And uh, it's not rocket surgery, as the expression goes. Um, there's a model that that we have here in the book that helps. Uh, it's a behavioral model for every one of these components that that, that I talk about and, and didn't even in our conversation. There's There are several things that people can do to build that facet into their collective. Um, it takes a little bit of commitment, um, but we have a model that's out there and we have people in CPR who are willing to work with you to uh, help in your
0: development and help your collectives. Well, thank you so much for all that. And I would like to thank, and thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. Uh, This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio. My guest today has been Fred Gibson. And this is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.